the Buddy Bean Show on Planet Fillmore Orbit. It's the Buddy Bean Show. Welcome to the show. And sitting in for Buddy Bean this evening is Lance Burton. It's the Buddy Bean Show. Powered by Planet Fillmore Communications. Where Willie Brown says it was the closest thing to Harlem and the Harlem Renaissance. It really was the heart of the world. That was true. You might say that uh, I'm a son of the football. I lived up on Sutter Street and, and uh, public housing projects. And my indication of San Francisco, commercially speaking, was pretty much Fillmore Street between Bush and Fulton. In that walkabout, there was everything you could ever want. The Uptown Theater was around the corner on Sutter and Steiner. You had uh, the Temple Theater which you could go see very old movies inexpensively. You could walk on down and you'd catch the Ellis Theater, which was further down this way. And then, of course, when you got to be old enough, you could hit the clubs. And there were one club after another. That was the long bar, the big plaza. Oh, there was some something for everybody. The Manor Plaza Hotel, the Booker T. Washington Hotel, with that good food joint in it. Gilmore's, which was around the corner. Welcome back to the Planet Fillmore Orbit. This is Lance Burton. This is part three of Harlem of the West, the journey into the Fillmore Corridor from the 1940s through late 1960s. The voice you just heard was the former mayor of San Francisco, Willie L. Brown, expressing his earliest visions of the Fillmore Corridor back in the 50s when he first arrived. That matches up with the way I saw it as I was a kid growing up on the streets of San Francisco, having lived at uh, 1745 Ellis Street, later on at 1775 O'Farrell, one of the buildings that still remains in the hood after most of the buildings were torn down along that corridor, along Gary Post, Ellis, Eddie, Turk, all the way down to Laguna, Franklin. As redevelopment uh, dug out the underground bypass underneath Fillmore Street to widen Gary Boulevard under the guise to speed the traffic along from the bedroom communities of the Richmond District and Sunset District out near the Pacific Ocean into the financial district of San Francisco, bypassing all those wonderful memories and businesses that the mayor talks about lined along the Fillmore Carter. Since the end of the 1906 earthquake, Fillmore had been a highly productive business district, and it stayed that way, especially as the mass migration of African Americans arrived in 1942 to join the more than 3,000 illustrious descendants of African American citizens, many whose families had been here in San Francisco since the 1840s. Here's the late founder-editor of the Sun Reporter, Tom Fleming. The 1940 census said there was less than 5,000 blacks living in the San Francisco. War workers started coming in right after Pearl Harbor. And uh, Oakland then, in 1940, had a, a black population of about 13,000. Berkeley had about 6,000. Imagine that. Berkeley, much smaller than San Francisco, had more blacks living over there than lived over here. But by 1947, just after the war, the San Francisco Planning and Housing Association had to make a decision as to whether they would use the State Community Redevelopment Act and deem the Fillmore 
blight it. Carlton came out here the summer of 1935. He just graduated from Howard University. He came out with out here with the intentions of getting in the program for the master's degree. This guy is truly remarkable. But guy, after he got out here, he decided to take the comprehensive for the PhD. He passed it. Never, never did get a master's degree. When Carlton got his PhD, Carlton was 22 years old. He did it in three years. This guy was very sharp and had a first-class mind. I never seen anyone quite as bright as him before in my life because he thought fast on his feet. He and Dan Collins had office together. Dan, Dan had been here. Dan came out here, I think, around about 43. He received that appointment to, you know, to, to, to do research and teach up to, at the UC School of Dentistry. And then he was practicing in dentistry, too. He had an office there. When Goodlett came, they shared joint offices together. And they both were, were, were interested in the paper, so uh, Goodlett started uh, lending us money. Well, the, the Sun came into existence. It was the second paper here in San Francisco called The Sun. The owner of it was a white man named Frank Laurent. Frank Laurent admired us so much, he was with us every day. And they'd have them poker games at Goodlett's house. They'd stay up all night long. Frank got in the hole for good for about $3,000. And he said, I'll tell you what I'll do. He said, if you give me $1,500, I'll give the sun to you. That's how he acquired the sun. And we took it over. After we acquired the sun, they called the paper the sun reporter. We did a lot of things over there together. We got into a lot of mischief. If you saw one, you saw the other. He started lending me money right away. He and Dan, Dr. Dan Collins, too, to keep the paper alive. We decided somebody should run for supervisor that year. I think it was in 47. And, and, and Haynes seemed to like us pretty well because we could, uh, well, Goodlett was a Baptist. He, he, he became a member of Haynes' congregation, too. That's the same year that George Christopher ran for the Board of Supervisors the first time, too. Well, George Christopher cultivated us very happily, thought, thought that we should form a joint ticket together, which we did. The county uh, central committee they endorsed Reverend Haynes because they saw how the, how the population was changing here in the city, and and Haynes they he finished six highest. Well, of course, uh, Christopher made it then. After Christopher was elected mayor, he made certain promises to Goodlett what what he's going to do about making black apartments here in San Francisco, which he failed to do. Well, Goodlett and Dan and they didn't like what they saw here because San Francisco, in, in fact like to enjoy the, re the reputation of being one of the most liberal cities in the United States. But it wasn't. Because I remember when Marion Anderson used to come here for concerts, Paul Rolston and Roland Hayes. They could not stay in the big hotels downtown. And the big restaurants, even those big restaurants down in Chinatown, refused to serve us. So uh, we saw how it was, all these blacks pouring in and thought it was time for us to become active in politics. Lewis Watts and Elizabeth Pepin, the authors of Harlem of the West, the book, are still here with me. And Lewis, you shared some images within the book that uh, would testify to the action that was going on along Fillmore and some of the people who were members of the community. Share a little bit about what you learned. That's been sort of the enduring thing, that people who witnessed it at its height really said it was this extraordinary period and extraordinary place. And in fact, that's, well, that's why it's important that the book can revisit that, but also that points out the tragedy of how that got wiped out. You spoke of 
many great folks that were there in, in the Fillmore during that era, that 25-year period from about 1942 to about 1967. How were they responding? How did they, was actually bringing back the characters and the flavor and the, that history that was so short-lived? What were the, the next generation of folks who you were encountering, what were they saying? Well, it was interesting that, that um, I, I know there's, at the end of the book, there's a picture of a, actually, we did a couple of installations on Fillmore Street sort of after the book came out. And I remember there was an older gentleman who was in front of it, and I came up to him and just said, what do you think about this? And he said, I walk over to look at this every day because it reminds me of the best time of my life. Dan Collins, who was a good friend of my father's and a dentist in the area, said that in the mid-40s, People who walked down the street with money coming out of their pockets that no one would even look up because yeah. there was employment, you know, and, and people had left Dixie. You know, this was the promised land. The streets were filled with gold. That changed when there was downturns and when the ship's yards closed. But it was a pretty amazing place. I did get to see that installation on Fillmore. And I know that you used a number of photographers' works, and including Steve Jackson, of course, at the Bob City, you had Ricardo Alvarado. It looks like some photos from the Harry Cox photo studio was involved. And of course, you pulled the photos from Red Shoeshine Parlor and Reggie Pettis had a collection. And there were many contributors uh, from collections, from everyone from Leola King and Frank Jackson to many members of the community. But uh, the central photographer there in the Fillmore, I think you got a chance to talk with and see his work as well, uh, David Johnson. How did that come about, Elizabeth? David Johnson we met when the KQED documentary got funded. We came up with the idea of putting out a call because there was so little material you know, in, in public archives putting out a call to viewers, hey, you know, do you have anything on the Fillmore? Give us a call. Here's our phone number. I think we had like 125 people call our hotline. Wow. And David Johnson's son, Michael Johnson, was a radio reporter. He mainly worked for KALW, that's the San Francisco Unified School District NPR station. Yeah. He heard our request and gave us a call and said, hey, my dad lives in Florida, but he is a pretty talented photographer. You should give him a call. Gave me a brief overview of David's story. And so I called David in Florida, which is when, when he still lived there. Mm-hmm. He said that, you know, we talked, seems to have an amazing story. And he was coming out to San Francisco to visit Michael. And so we met in the Haight-Ashbury. And that's the first time that I met David Johnson. He came out and he had some of his, he brought some of his photographs. His talent, his eye, it cannot be denied. I mean, he's an extremely accomplished photographer. And as a photographer myself, I could, you know, I was just blown away by how good he was. And then learning that he was the first African-American to study with Ansel Adams and his whole journey from, you know, getting out of, service in World War II and taking the train from Florida to come to San Francisco and live in Ansel's house and study in that first class at what became the Art Institute was fascinating. 
John Trumpet, known as Trumpet around the hood. He, along with Ernest Dusen, yes, Ruth Dusen, the hat lady's husband, were the first two doormen at the Fontana, the large twin high-rise down on Van Ness and North Point Street. Mr. Trumpet had been called to San Francisco in the 1930s as an iron worker and Trumpet knew everyone. Everyone in the Fillmore knew John Trumpet. Mr. Sutter and Bush. Uh-huh. But, but across the street. 
So, Mr. Johnson, how was he able to get his hands on that? He went down on Bobby Cole's open doors. Okay. And uh, the guy he wiped for him, he, up him, he opened that place up in West. Oh, he opened up the uh, Club, Texas Playhouse. But Wesley wound up, he died. And Wesley wound up on it now. But he's on it anyway because he bought it his thing. So you remember when that club opened up? Yeah. So I remember when it opened. What are we talking like? The f it opened in the 40s. Uh -huh. 45. 45. That's when they start to go going up that hill. Okay. Because the soldiers? No. Soldiers, when they said he was Wesley up, opened that club right there. But the soldiers hang out there. The playhouse? Yeah, the playhouse. So that kind of got them going up there? Yeah. And then the folks up the hill would come down. The folks up the hill come down and, like, participate? Well, Wesley opened the place up. Them soldiers themselves and things kept that place full. I didn't go in there. Okay. Too many soldiers, too many service men in there. Uh -huh. fight all of them down the street here, man. They had two show patrolmen here. Used to walk this video. They had pistols on. Holly Fryer is the granddaughter of Wesley Johnson and the daughter of Wesley Johnson, Jr. Well, my grandfather was an amazing man, I must say that. I remember, a lot of people may not know, that he came to San Francisco in 1915 with his mother and uh, his nephew, and her nephew. And she worked as a domestic and raised her son and her nephew, and... Then my father and my uncle were born, and my great-grandmother, who I was fortunate enough to meet and to know. And I remember my grandfather, when he had his club, I, of course, was not allowed to go in there during business hours, uh -huh. but I was there during the day. And he had a long bar that was covered in plexiglass, and under the plexiglass, there was silver dollars down the whole bar. I tried. Did you ever count any? I never counted those, but I remember one day we came by to visit, and somebody had broken in and stolen the oh. whole bar. Oh, boy. So somebody counted those silver dollars. Wow. <laughs> I did not know that. So my grandfather, my grandfather was a great philanthropist, and he did bring Juneteenth to San Francisco. My grandfather is from Texas, from Beaumont, Texas. And when he brought Juneteenth to San Francisco, he got all the churches involved, and he would wear a Texas hat, and he would ride down Fillmore Street on a white stallion. <laughs> so I do remember that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, actually, there is a picture of my grandfather with Billy Holiday in the book you probably know about called Harlem of the West. So there's a picture of my grandfather with Billy Holiday. He used to do the oh. UNCF College Fund. Lou Wall yeah. came to my father's pharmacy okay. and bought a subscription. He heard that there was a black-owned pharmacy 
and that was at 1967. And he came in and, and bought a prescription, and it just made our day. My father went to UC Berkeley undergraduate and went to USC and was in the first graduating class of PharmDs, so doctorates in pharmacy. Uh-huh. And he wanted to work at a different pharmacy in downtown San Francisco. And this story is told, as I can refer again to Harlem of the West, my father was accepted as a pharmacist by mail. And then when he showed up at the pharmacy and a black man in the 50s, he was asked to come into the back room where the lead pharmacist said, you know, this is not going to work. You can't work here. And he went home and told his father, and his father said, son, we'll just build you a pharmacy of your own. And a lot of people don't realize that my father owned a chain, a small chain of pharmacies in San Francisco. He had three pharmacies, one in the Fillmore, one on Ocean Avenue, and one in the Bayview-Hunters Point District. So he had three pharmacies for 25 years. It was, it was its own little city. Um, you know, we had our black pharmacy, liquor store. If you had Virginia Hickory Pit down the street. All the black dentists and doctors were right around there. Everything that you needed as a black person was there for you in the Fillmore. Well, he was an activist in the area. One story that I remember of my father telling was involved trying to get housing for black people. He helped to create these these low-income housing units to benefit African Americans in that area, particularly those that were displaced because of San Francisco redevelopment. Yeah. And now those same houses are no longer low-income. They are actually co-ops. So that was another way that we were pushed out of Fillmore. Generational wealth that would have been transferred from my grandfather's era, even just to my father's era, nobody would have to work anymore. We'll just say it like that. My grandfather was forced to sell all of his income property in San Francisco to San Francisco Redevelopment. And we all know that story. How San Francisco Redevelopment came in and they were going to improve the neighborhoods and all of that African-American-owned properties. So if, if we just still had the property where my father's uh, pharmacy was, that would be worth, I don't know, maybe 5 or $6 million because the pharmacy was downstairs, but there were 8 to 10 apartments upstairs. But I'll tell you, I had my first job working for my father in his pharmacy at 1960 Yes, he let me start working when I was 12. I was a clerk in the pharmacy, and at lunchtime, I would go next door there was a, a record store uh-huh. owned by David Rosenbaum, I think. Yeah. And I would I would go over there and listen to records for thirty minutes and then come back to work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it it was it was a fun spirit in the Fillmore, without a doubt. It was. It was. It was its own little city. Mm. Or you know, he did have a club before on Columbus. Uh, that's what I understand. Well, it was called the Purple Onion. I'll tell you, it really, the history of San Francisco is so intricate and so important because he was one of the first black club owners in that district as well. 
had the opportunity to read from the book Harlem of the West at a club called Doc's Lab on Columbus. Yeah. And uh, I said at the beginning of my presentation, I understand that my grandfather used to have a club in this area, and it was called the Purple Onion. And somebody from the back of the room said, you're in the Purple Onion right now. <laughs> I, was, I was very proud uh, to be in a building that was owned by my grandfather, that my father ran his business, and um, he had amazing eight or nine foot tall pictures in the pharmacy of famous African-Americans in medicine. They were framed all in gold, just like the pictures that were in the Texas Playhouse. So I remember learning about African-Americans in health and medicine from my father's pharmacy. I remember the record store. I remember the good food that I can get in the neighborhood. And it was a, it was a great little community. The Harlem of the West and San Francisco, the Fillmore. Greetings. I'd like to introduce you to the Fillmore Jazz Ambassador. Please allow me to take you back, way back, to a sentimental journey. I was there when jazz came alive. I remember I cried when I heard the first note. I love the music. Dizzy, Duke, Miles, Billy, Louis, Jules Bouchard, Al Dubrow, Sarah, John Handy, Johnny Mathis. I used to hear historic music when I walked down for a while, but not anymore. I miss it. My dream is to bring jazz back and restore the legacy of a Fillmore cultural environment. I am Darlene Roberts, founder and CEO of Fillmore Jazz Ambassador, a 501c3 nonprofit organization. We are a team of professional jazz historians and musicians offering workshops and workshop presentations that commemorate and celebrate the Fillmore Jazz Era, once known as Harlem of the West. Come visit us at www.fillmorejazzambassadors.org. was known as the big boss of the Fillmore District. During the 40s to mid-50s, Fats, as he was known, a rather large man of European descent, always traveling with bodyguards. According to Herb Cain's daily column, Corlett didn't even trust Banks to handle his loot. 
As Kane puts it, he had plenty of it in the Edison Hotel vault, known as quote-unquote cold cash. Corlett had his hand in virtually everything that went on on the Fillmore Corridor. He sued Billie Holiday for $30,000 when she refused to perform a contract at the Long Bar for $1,000 a night. Trumpet continues the story of Billie Holiday in part four of Harlem of the West. This is community-sponsored content, and it's supported by the community and the public at large. Feel free to hit that support button and join us. More content can be seen at planetfillmore.tv, which is also accessible right here on this podcast platform. Look for the little button just above the features that says website. Click it and enjoy a whole host of materials from the Planet Fillmore Orbit. Feature stories and profiles on how our lives matter. This program has been made possible with the support of Fillmore Jazz Ambassadors, the Village Project of San Francisco, the African American Historical and Cultural Society of San Francisco, the Mary Crisp Arts in the Hood, Anna and Joseph F. Bonnie Simon, the Joseph L. Smith Family Traditions, the Spears Gallery, Art and Tours, the National Coalition of 100 Black Women in San Francisco, the Afro Solo Theater Company, Wright Enterprises, the L. Doris Cameron Family, the Karen Johnson Family, Maxine Hickman, the Noah Griffin Family, First Family of Philadelphia, George Crippen, Charles Dixon, the late Marie Baker, Professor Raymond Hobart, the Maxwell family, Polly's Kitty Care, Trinity Foster Family Services of the Bay Area, Carol and Lawrence Gray, Association of Midnight Basketball Leagues of America, Linda, Greg, and James Parker Pennington, the St. John's Will I Am co-trained global spiritual community and African Orthodox Church. Some of the music heard accompanying in this feature included Bob City Era, Charlie Parker, F. Allen Smith, the Ray Charles Orchestra, Vintage Motown Funk Brothers, Benny Benjamin and Earl Van Dyke, the David Herman Big Band featuring arrangements by Frank Fisher, Sam Peoples contributed transitions, Earl Davis and the Detroit Brain Stretching Medicine Band, and Fillmore's own son, from Shasta Lodge, the late Bobby Spider-Web. This has been segment three of Harlem of the West, the making of Harlem of the West. This has been a Planet Fillmore Communications production. The show's producers, Christina Lett and Renata Mitchell. I'm Lance Burton, and these stories are powered by Planet Fillmore Communications.
everyone. I'm Dr. David Hardiman Sr., co-founder and vice president and musical director, composer, arranger, recording artist, and jazz historian. And I'm excited to tell you about the Fillmore Jazz Ambassadors to create excitement and rejuvenate jazz through jazz history workshops, jam sessions, and jazz production workshops. To showcase the jazz projects from the workshops presented featuring local artists for the Fillmore Jazz Ambassadors. We're going to inspire a jazz renaissance to transform the old Fillmore Jazz Preservation District and bring back a new Fillmore Jazz District by spreading jazz throughout the San Francisco Bay Area. So you can contact me at dhardeman2001-2000 at yahoo.com. That's D-H-A-R-D-I-M-A-N-2001-2000 at yahoo.com. Or 510-275-3688. I can't wait to tell you about the Fillmore Jazz Ambassador's new Fillmore Jazz District. And it's like the song that's playing now for my big band. It'll be all right.